Good evening, everyone. We're going to get started now. Welcome. It's so good to see everybody on this cold night. Um, tonight's Science Cafe is called Mapping Ocean Biodiversity Hotspots. So if you're on a different flight, then you might want to get off. Um, my name's Amy Harris. I'm director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan. And we've been sponsoring Science Cafes for 15 years. And we'd like to give special thanks to Connor O'Neill's for being our host all that time. And before we get started, I'd like to share some of the uh, events that the museum has coming up very soon. Uh, this Sunday, November 20th, we have a scientist spotlight when you can talk to scientists about their work. And they'll be at tables throughout the museum with lots of things for you to look at and touch and, and enjoy. And at 1.15 on Sunday, there's a special performance of biology students partnering with a school of music, theater, and dance students. And it's called Movement Under the Microscopes, looking at some of the functions inside of cells and, and demonstrating those movements um, on, in the West Atrium of the Biological Sciences Building. So come check that out. On Thursday, December 1st, we have our annual Ferrand Memorial Lecture. And uh, our speaker is with us today, but I won't embarrass him. Um, the topic is um, in, oh, gee, in the, on the trail of an Ice Age Mastodon. So please come to the BSB for that event. We have a reception beforehand at 6 o'clock and the lectures at 7. It's also available um, online, live streamed. So check our website for details for that. The next day on December 2nd, we have 30% off in the museum store, one day only. So come in and do your holiday shopping. On Saturday, December 3rd, there's another scientist spotlight. And um, if you're members of the museum, you should have received an email inviting you to a breakfast before that. So check your email. So um, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce Kira Berman, who's going to get us started. Thanks, Kira. Thank you, Amy. And thanks all of you for being here and making science cafes fun, making them what they are. Um, just another reminder, if you haven't signed in, please sign in. If you haven't donated to the little box, Amy, you want to hold the box up? We really want to fill that up by the end of the night. Thank you. Um, uh, it really does make Science Cafes possible, because otherwise we couldn't do the room and the food and all that stuff. So it's really important. Um, the format that we use uh, is uh, we first have a couple of presentations uh, from our wonderful guests, who I'm about to introduce. And then um, we'll have conversation at your tables. And so uh, when, when we break, there's some conversation starters on the, on the tables. Uh, a couple of questions for discussion, and our speakers will rotate among the tables uh, and, and sort of help get those conversations going. And then we'll come back all together for a large group discussion uh, at the very end. So there's sort of three parts to our format. Um, so let me introduce our speakers. I feel super lucky to have you guys here tonight. Um, Matt Friedman. Uh, is here. He's director and associate curator at the UM Museum of Paleontology and associate professor in Earth and Environmental Sciences. His research draws on clues locked in anatomy, genomes, and the fossil record to document the evolutionary assembly of modern vertebrate biodiversity. One of his current projects that he'll t discuss today uses old fossils of fishes to map biodiversity hotspots in ancient oceans. Matt received his BS in biology and geology from the University of Rochester and his master's of philosophy in zoology from Cambridge. Is that how you say that? Did I murder that? And, 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 and his PhD in evolution, evolutionary biology from the University of Chicago, also my alma mater. Um, uh, uh, and uh, he was also a lecturer, associate professor, 
and professor at Oxford. So please welcome Matt Friedman. Hernan Lopez Fernandez is the Associate Chair for Collections and EEB Museums Associate Professor and Curator of Fishes at the UM Museum of Zoology. He's interested in the evolutionary processes that create mega diverse groups of organisms and the role of ecology in shaping the evolution of diversity. His lab studies the diversity, evolutionary history, and conservation of fishes, particularly those from the neotropical region of South and Central America. His research program focuses on the evolution of ecological and morphological specialization in fish species using both fieldwork and collection studies. Hernan received his undergraduate degree from the Universidad de los Andes in Venezuela and did his PhD at Texas A&M. <laughs> Please welcome Hernan. All right, I will let these guys get us started, and uh, I'll be back there in case the slide advances don't work. Great. <clears throat> Can everyone hear me okay? Perfect. Okay, well, thanks for, for, for joining us on this cold and wintry evening. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about our understanding of how biodiversity came to be in much warmer, sunnier places than Michigan in the middle of November. So the focus of, of, of my half of this pair of talks is to discuss a little bit how fossils can provide us with clues about how patterns of diversity have not only shifted in terms of the numbers of kinds of species that were around in t different times in the past, but where those species lived, right? The fossil record gives us three different kinds of information, right? It gives us information about what ancient creatures looked like, right? We have information locked in their skeletons, or in the case of plants, their leaves and stems and branches. It also gives us information about time, right? When in the geological past particular kinds of organisms were alive. It also provides us with a third piece of evidence to be the focus of what I'll talk about today is it provides us with evidence of place, right? Where lineages once inhabited the earth. So if we go and look at the fossil, at the, at the you know, range of modern species today, this will be a very fishy pair of talks. You may have gathered from the introductions we just heard that both Arnan and I are, are fish nerds. I think we can say that pretty safely. Um, here is a map showing the kind of diversity in cartoon form of marine fish species. So the warmer colors, the yellows and the reds, those are areas of high species richness. Okay, so we'll call these biodiversity hotspots. They're kind of the aquatic equivalent of rainforests on land. And you'll notice that species richness is really concentrated in this part of the Earth, the Indo-West Pacific Coral Triangle. It's a region between sort of northern Australia, the Indonesian archipelago, and the Philippines. And there are a variety of reasons for that. You have a lot of small islands. You have a lot of shallow sea area. It's a, a place that is very conducive to the generation, but also accumulation of biological diversity. But of course, as paleontologists, well, I'm, as a paleontologist myself, we realize that the snapshots we get from the modern day are just one slice. They're one page in the story of the history of life on Earth. Okay? And as it turns out, these distributions of species across the globe vary with climate. They vary with changing configurations and geometries of continents and other land masses. And so this disposition of species richness in this part of the world today is, as it turns out, a relatively recent phenomenon. So if we map this to the geological timescale here, this is you know, the, the upper part of the geological timescale. It keeps on going sort of down here and into the basement for a while. To kind of orient you with some major events, this division here is the division between the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic divided by a mass extinction event, right? The kind of worst early spring day we know is a spring day now, thanks to fishes. Fishes provide all kinds of wonderful clues. I can tell you about how we know that in a little bit. This, of course, is when dinosaurs went extinct, right? A meteorite strikes the earth. All kinds of terrible things happen. Um, but that opens up new kinds of opportunities for other groups of animals, famously including mammals. So the group that we ourselves belong to 
our success is probably tied to this deep event in Earth's history. It's up here only that we see this arrangement of this concentration of species richness in the Indo-West-Pacific. What do we know about earlier parts of the geological record? Well, if we go back to the early parts of the Cenozoic, we see a rather different pattern, not only of continental configurations, but also where we find the largest concentration of marine species. So we don't have this complex chain of islands here in the Indo-West Pacific in the early parts of the Cenozoic round about 45 million years ago. Instead, we have an area that looks structurally like that, a series of island chains intercalated between North Africa and Southern Europe. And so a question that I'm trying to address by using the fossil record is, how and when did this center of biological diversity shift from this ancestral position, if you will, between Africa and Europe to its current position in the Indo-West Pacific? Now, this, of course, requires us to investigate the fossil record in many different parts of the world. As it turns out, we've got a really good fossil record in this part of the world thanks to the fact that the European fossil record is really extensively studied. Okay, that's where kind of paleontology started as a science, um, and it's a place where there's been active research on fossils for centuries. And here's some evidence of that. These are fossil fishes from the Eocene of northern Italy, um, outside a small village called Bolca, which itself is outside of the, the city of Verona, which is a, a, an Italian city just in the foothills of the Alps, it's a terrible place to have to go and do research. Um, so these are amazing fossil specimens capturing a 48 million year old coral reef assemblage. So you can recognize many of the animals here. So we have things like skates and rays. We have surgeon fishes. We have trumpet fishes. We have tunas. We have angler fishes. We have relatives of puffer fishes and so on. 200 species of fishes are known from complete skeletons from this amazing site. And here is the site itself. This site has been excavated since the 1500s, not for building stones, not for fill, but for fossil fishes. The earliest accounts of fossil fishes and earliest illustrations of fossil fishes in this site date to the 1500s. In contrast to this amazing information we have about the kinds of fossils that inhabited the ancient early Cenozoic hotspot. We know almost nothing about the kinds of animals that lived outside of that region during this time in Earth's history. And so that's where the kind of research that I'm conducting now ties into this story. So if we go back and look at the world 48 million years ago, it's kind of a larger picture of that map I showed earlier. It is a different looking place. Here you can see our early Cenozoic biodiversity hotspot, right? You can see these complex chains of islands strewn throughout that gap we call the West Tethys between North Africa and Southern Europe. We see that North and South America are not yet connected. We see that Australia is strikingly close to Antarctica. We see there's no polar ice. It's a much warmer world than we live in today. And we also see that here in the region that become the Indo-West Pacific, we have a giant island continent called Indo-Pakistan, which is steaming its way north at an incredible rate of speed for a continent um, to throw up the Himalaya later in the Cenozoic. And it's here that previous paleontologists, the Museum of Paleontology, did a lot of work completely unrelated to fossil fishes. So my, my colleague, Philip Gingrich, whose name you might know is someone who's worked extensively in the fossil record of mammals, was working in Pakistan starting in the 1970s, looking for early evidence of whales. So this is one of the sites he was working in in Northwest Pakistan. These are bedded marine limestones. You can see these beautiful layers of rock. And indeed, he did find important evidence there bearing on the evolutionary origin of whales. Here is a reconstruction mount of an animal called Myocetus. You can see this specimen on display at the Natural History Museum. This is an early relative of whales that retains a set of arms and legs 
that looks like what you would see in its terrestrial antecedents, right? Whales are a kind of aquatic mammal. They descend from land-living animals. But those are wonderful, but we're really here to see the fishes, right? That's what we want to see. So um, six or seven years ago when I interviewed here for the job, um, I, was, I was talking to some of the current graduate students. I went to the grad student office. There's this tantalizing, tantalizing cabinet. As a fish paleontologist, you kind of poke around in museums and you find interesting things because fishes are often kind of this neglected component of the vertebrate fossil record. And so um, I saw this cabinet. It said Habib Rahi Fishes, Middle Eocene, Pakistan. And as someone who had spent the past decade studying the fossil record of fishes, I knew, wait a minute, there are no fishes from there. We know nothing about the kinds of animals that live there. This is really important. I opened it up, half expecting it to be you know, bits and pieces, scraps, maybe the odd shark tooth or something like that. But instead, it's full of all of these amazing fossil specimens capturing patterns of diversity in a part of the world that before that point had been completely unknown to us. And here's a sample of some of those fossils showing the different ways we can study these animals. So here is a admittedly unimpressive fossil. But when you shine x-ray lights through that rock, you get these beautiful complete skeletons. This is an animal called a moonfish. Belongs to the genus Mini, which we now know has basically looked the same way for about 60 million years. Here are a set of fossils that um, studying in conjunction with, with current and former graduate students using CT scanning, right? So just like a medical CT scan, we're using it with fossils with rather higher x-ray doses than you would get hopefully if you go to the hospital to take sections through these. This is the skull of, believe it or not, uh, a saber-toothed anchovy. Because, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, like a Flintstones cliche, right? Every, every extinct animal has a, has a sort of saber-toothed version, right? Do you have these remarkable kind of experiments in the early Cenozoic with groups of animals trying new kinds of ecologies in this post-extinction landscape? This is the skull of a, of a kind of fish that lives today only in freshwater ecosystems, but in the Cenozoic lived in marine settings as well, which gives us clues about how maybe they achieve their current distribution. And um, I guess we could try a little bit of an interactive quiz here. I brought some props. So here are um, some casts of, of, of fossil specimens from that site. So this is the back half of a, of a large fish. Does anyone want to take guess what that is? It's not really fair. It's too far away to identify it. Oh, wow, we've got people who've got, OK, this is great. You're, all right, we're going here. Get, get closer. Do you want some clues? Sure. I can give you some culinary clues. Um, let's see. We'll be good. Wait, who, who, someone, someone had a good one. Close. Did someone say Charlie? Ah, uh, you did. Okay. Uh, it is not, sadly, it's not a prehistoric halibut. Um, you might find it in a can. You might oh. find it in a salad. Oh, tuna. Yes, exactly. So this is the back half of a tuna. So, um, which we can tell there are, are particular features of the, the tail skeleton of the animals. So tunas are really remarkably specialized for high-speed cruising, and so they've got really specialized tails. I'm, guess, I'm guessing with that one, the uh, expiration date is long expired. Yes, I, I mean, I think, I think it's great. I think this is a perfectly good fossil, but you're right. You wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> the other specimen I have um, is a little bit more esoteric. Um, actually, can I have you hold that up for me? Um, so this is, is another kind of animal. This is a, a kind of a creature called a, a spade fish. And it's particularly interesting because there's a picture of the original fossil that's back at the museum. So this is a cast of that specimen. The remarkable thing about this is this animal is a spot on match for animals that we know from that European hotspot at the same time. So we have these connections in terms of the kinds of organisms living in the ancient Proto-Indian Ocean and this area that was at that time a hot spot. So here is one of these specimens from the Eocene of Bolka in Italy. These are really exceptional fossils. The fossils from Pakistan are incredible, but the ones from Bolka are another thing entirely. Many of these fossils actually preserve patterns of pigmentation. So we can actually document 
what the banding patterns or patterns of spots on these animals was like. And in some cases, these creatures show incredible conservatism with respect to their pigmentation patterns. We can show that there are members of the same groups of fishes that we see today that had similar patterns of pigmentation 50 million years ago. So one of the, the fun things about this kind of project is being able to tell these stories to, to people in person, but also to share our research with, with the public through exhibits at the Museum of Natural History. So if you're able to visit, um, one of the two cases down in the main atrium has a display featuring some of these casts of fossils um, and some interpretive text kind of explaining the, the kinds of research questions we're hoping to address by studying these fossil materials and working with students to help uncover the stories that these fossils that were collected many decades ago still can tell us by asking new kinds of questions and applying new kinds of techniques to analyzing those remains. So, yeah, Matt Friedman, he works, he works with very old fishes. Um, uh, but it's actually kind of fun to work with Matt. There you go. So I should start by making a disclaimer. I work neither with marine fishes nor with fossils, and not really with hot spots of biodiversity either, although maybe you can, you can say that I do in some ways. But um, it's been really interesting working with Matt over the last few years and even designing some research together because when you get this fossil perspective on biodiversity, even when you work with living things, you start thinking about it in a, in a somewhat different way. You, you kind of think, uh, okay, this came from somewhere. And the things that we see today and the things that we're interested in seeing today, they, they didn't just appear. They, they have a history of change that has led to what we're seeing today. And it's kind of appropriate that Matt started his presentation with a slide similar to this one. So this is the hotspots of marine fish biodiversity as we know them today. And as Matt very cogently explained, this hotspot that we see here around Australia and Indonesia, that, that wasn't there some 48 million years ago. It was in some no longer existing oceanic region over here between Africa and what was going to become Europe before India hit Asia and formed the Himalayas. And that is a really stark reminder in my mind of the fact that environments change and that the diversity of organisms changes for very large numbers of reasons, and that what we see today is sort of a snapshot of the history of life. And I think it's a stark reminder also of the fact that there are many reasons for environments to change, and that for better or worse, we ourselves as humans are, are an element of environmental change that is having impacts on biodiversity that we don't, we don't fully understand. And so, one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about linking paleontology with modern biology is can we learn things from the past that might tell us things about what the future might hold for biodiversity and for ourselves? So what I'm going to do is very simple. I, I'm actually a freshwater fish biologist and while Matt was talking about this map of marine fishes somewhere on the other end of the world. I was actually fascinated looking at South America and how different it looked 48 million years ago and thinking, well, there's some fishes that are 48 million years old that lived in that thing. And much like the, the fossils that Matt was talking about, looked exactly the same as some of the fishes that live here today. So some of these things have been around for a long time, but we shouldn't count on that to be the case. So what I want to do is show you five maps today. That's all I'm going to do, starting with the same map that Matt started with, which is this is where marine fishes live today in, 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 in terms of their species richness. So the redder the color, the larger the number of species that you see. So obviously this area of Australia, the western Indo-Pacific, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily diverse part of the, of, of the oceans. But there are other parts, like around here in Africa, Madagascar, Caribbean. Um, but that's not the only way to think about how diversity can be identified as forming hotspots. And there are some very interesting complementary ways to think about it that is something that I actually find kind of fascinating. This is uh, from a very recent paper in which that same diversity of, of fishes that Matt was talking about and that we see in that species richness map 
is actually presented from a different perspective. So on the left, this is gonna sound very counterintuitive because why would you do this? I want you to think about it. On the left, what we see is at the top, bony fishes, and on the bottom, cartilaginous fishes, skates, rays, uh, sharks, in hot spots of rarity. This is where the highest concentration of rare species of bony fishes and cartilaginous fishes are found on the oceans, which I think is really, really interesting. This rarity is not just in terms of species that are rare, but it's combined with some statistical magic that I don't fully understand with their ecological rarity. So these aren't just fishes that are rare because you're gonna rarely see them, but they are fishes also that are weird in the sense that they do rare things ecologically. They might look really odd and they might have very strange ecological functions. If this is not something that looks particularly clear, the authors of the paper were particularly helpful in making it very stark. So what they did is they combined those things and created a model that tells us where in the world these rare fishes occur with higher or lower frequency than we would expect at random. So what they find is really fascinating because it doesn't exactly follow this species richness hotspots that we just showed you, right? So remember that this area has some of the highest species richness of marine fishes in terms of the sheer number of species. But it turns out in this other map for bony fishes, they're very exceptionally rare. The more, the more numbers of rare species than you would expect at random in red are concentrated not where there's more species, but rather on their fringes. So this part of Eastern Asia into uh, the Bering Sea and Eastern Russia and all that, that's where you find really weird fishes um, in terms of in terms of them being rare in, term, uh, uh, in, the, in their frequency and also in their ecological function. You also, also find them here, east of Australia and on parts of Antarctica and in southern Africa, you find them quite a bit. And these areas in blue are the ones that have less rare species than you would expect at random. So it's a completely different way to think about hot and shall we say cold spots of biodiversity on the ocean. And the interesting thing is that bony fishes have a very different distribution than cartilaginous fishes for rarity, right? So we have hot spots of rare cartilaginous fishes right here, like off of the coast of Ireland um, uh, and Southern Africa and things like that. It's very different kind of hot spots. And I promise you, I'm gonna go somewhere with this. Um, <laughs> now, this is where the authors of this paper went to with, with, with their rarity map. What you see in this dark purple for bony fishes and for elasmobranchs is how well the rare fishes match with what we have designated as marine protected areas. This is really important and this is where rarity starts having a really interesting role in in this whole idea that with environmental change and over time biodiversity changes. Rare species are very important in ecology because they are the ones that tend to do weird things that not everybody's doing. You, you, we easily can think of the, the very abundant species, anchovies and sardines and things like that, but they're really strange looking fishes that we see in coral reefs, but they are rare to see that you don't see them all the time. They might have some really interesting ecological roles that we're not aware of because they're rare. Or they might have the, the ability to evolve into new directions over time because they preserve a lot of the genetic and, 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 and functional diversity that is not present in the more common species. So it's important from a conservation perspective to think about these because these fishes in some ways, and this biodiversity in some ways, the rare biodiversity, serves as a reservoir for the future biodiversity, for when the next India hits the next proto-Himalayas, there's gonna have to be something there that becomes the crazily diverse seas of 50 million years from now. And so this rare diversity is really important. And it turns out we have a pretty serious mismatch between the hotspots of rare diversity and the, and the distribution of our marine 
uh, preservation areas, and which is kind of interesting. It's something like 50-50. Some of the, of the marine conservation areas include some of these rare hotspots, others miss, it, miss them completely, which means that we're not really thinking about the preservation of a, of a pretty important part of marine biodiversity. So that's the map number three. This is map number four. This is a really interesting, if somewhat concerning map. So I could tell you very quickly that this is a map representing the strongest impact of climate change on oceans, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Again, we keep our, 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 our color game here. So the hotter the color, the redder or, or orange or yellower the color, the bigger the impact. But the impact here is a combination of surface temperature increases due to, to climate change, to global warming, and combined with a reduction in primary productivity, which basically means a reduction in the presence of plankton and photosynthetic uh, organisms that live in the area, as well as change in ocean currents, because both warming and the addition of, of fresh water in certain areas of the planet are actually changing currents. So this heat map is, is complicated to explain because it's formed by a conflation of these three characteristics, but they all go hand in hand, mostly triggered by global warming. So we see that there's a massive impact of global warming here in the Arctic, especially on the western side of the Atlantic and, 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 and northern part of the Atlantic, along the equator, particularly in the Pacific and, and, and in this part of the western Pacific. But also here, like this little point around the Rio de la Plata in Argentina and Uruguay is also very directly affected by this uh, global warming with consequences for current change and for, for primary productivity and so on. Okay, you might say, what is this guy talking about? So here's another thing, and this is the last map that I'm gonna show you, and then you may rest. Um, <laughs> so what this map is doing is trying to combine all these things that I just showed you. The biodiversity distribution of species richness of particularly ecologically relevant components of marine biodiversity of the climate environment uh, and environmental changes impacts on oceans and just since we haven't talked about enough things, also the impact of commercial fisheries around the world and combining all these results to designate what they call hotspots of biodiversity from a conservation perspective. These are some areas, these six areas that they identified that, that have this sort of sinister combination of really high species richness, really high rarity and ecological specialization, as well as really high impacts of environmental change and often very high impacts of fisheries uh, so they propose that these six areas of the planet need desperate care because we're, they are having an unusually large amount of impacts. So just quoting them, when we overlap these hotspots, they suggest a worrying coincidence whereby the world's richest areas for marine biodiversity are also those areas mostly affected by both climate change and industrial fishing. So it's really, interesting and sort of concerning. I don't want to turn this into a downer or anything like that, but um, because we know from the past that environmental change ha can have fundamental consequences for biodiversity and, and, how, and, and how it may or may not stay for a long period, I think it's really relevant for us to think about the long-term consequences of how we are affecting the environment on the planet because I don't think most of us want to have to go to some cave in Italy to, to dig out what was alive when, when we were having a, a conversation and a beer in a, in a bar in Ann Arbor. I, I'd rather have the fishes alive somewhere and go snorkel with them or something like that. So uh, uh, I don't know if that made a whole lot of sense, but I, I, I really find it very compelling to think of the long-term um, changes in biodiversity and how they relate to the environment and, and to the biology, if you will, of the whole planet. And I find it very sobering that we can have an impact that is so distinctly measurable on the biodiversity that we coexist with today. So 
I'm going to leave it there and thank you for your attention and for your and for coming here tonight. Thanks very much. We'll take a break now. Uh, you can the wait staff will be in shortly. You can refill your glasses um, and uh, take a look at the questions on your tables as a starting place for discussion. We'll come back together in about 20 minutes or so uh, for a group question and answer or group discussion. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I always, I'm always a little bit hesitant to interrupt the good conversations that uh, are taking place during the Science Cafe. Um, so this part of the cafe is a group discussion. And uh, I will moderate the discussion. Um, so um, when you guys have questions, and I hope you have lots of questions, um, I'll, I'll let you know when you have the floor and also when you don't. Um, I'm going to pass this cordless mic. I have some little wipes that I'll be using in between speakers um, because of the world we live in right now. Um, Please use the microphone, though, it, because it enables those with hearing impairments to hear, and so that, whoopsie, no worries, um, and so that uh, we can record our conversation for a later podcast. Um, please look at me to be recognized uh, to speak. I'll keep the um, questions line up, even though I have no expertise in fishes beyond some culinary familiarity. Um, please limit your questions or comments to 30 seconds to a minute so that lots of people can participate. I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, I'm going to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, just to diversify the voices that we hear. And I always hope this part will feel more like a group discussion than just a Q&A. And especially tonight, there's an incredible amount of expertise in the room, um, amazing amount of expertise in the room. So please feel free to address questions um, to our whole group uh, as well as to our speakers. Oh, yes, uh, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate even as we address topics about which we may disagree. So please be nice to each other or else. And if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, future generations of museum curators may puzzle over exactly what happened to your phone this evening. Please silence your phone. Um, so does anybody have a question or comment or realization or inspiration? Hi there. Thanks for the uh, great talks. Um, my neighbor and I were kind of wondering about the factors that result in a place at a certain time being one of these hotspots or not. So I, I guess the question is, what are the factors in terms of, you know, temperature, variabilities in temperature, or, you know, how high up are there islands? It seemed like that was something that, you know, you mentioned that are important, one. And then secondly, you know, when you see this kind of changing hotspots uh, over time, is that something that can be used to, I don't know, shed a causal light on what, what the big factors are? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. So um, thinking about the, the, the kinds of factors that govern the distribution of these hotspots, I mean, you hit, you hit on one of the big ones right, right there when you talked about the distribution of islands and the concentration of, of shallow marine settings that are to some degree separated by deeper waters. So one of the most um, kind of central patterns in biology when we think about how species are spread across space is the so-called species area effect, right? If you have more independent areas, the more species diversity you can accumulate if there's a lack of connectivity between those areas. And so you'll notice there are these kind of almost topographic similarities between the ancient hotspot and the modern hotspot in the sense that you have this chain of islands separated by deeper waters, um, you know, early on between North Africa and Southern Europe, later on in the Indo-West Pacific. To some degree, there's probably also the impact of, of, of climate. Um, so when you have this hotspot between North Africa and Southern Europe, 
this is a time when there's no polar ice. It's a greenhouse interval of worse, of worse climate. So climates at the mid latitudes, you know, 40, 45 degrees north where, where Italy is, where that fossil deposit is, were probably tropical climates at that point. And we did there like palm trees and fossil coconuts and all kinds of things that you wouldn't really necessarily find there today. Um, so there is this complex interplay of, of different factors. Thinking about moving forward, um, I have another project actually that's looking at, um, at what life was like in the tropics during these really warm interv intervals of Earth history because, because so much of our record is from kind of mid-latitudes of the northern hemisphere. We don't have a good understanding of what diversity was like in the tropics during some of these times when you know, climate was much warmer than today and getting a sense of how biological diversity responds to these really warm intervals is something that we'd hope to do with the, the data that's locked in the fossil record. Um, I could add a little bit, but, but yes, you hit on one of the big ones, and, and actually it's a big question in evolutionary biology. Why is it that we have these hotspots? And in general, what we tend to think about is, well, how fast are species originating in an area versus how fast are species becoming extinct in that area? Because extinction is an is a, is a important component of, uh, of, of biodiversity, of, of, of how biodiversity becomes what we see. So you could have many different combinations of, 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 of speciation and extinction in different areas. So for instance, South America has the largest concentration of freshwater fishes on the planet, like on the order of 6,000 plus described, and we think there's gonna be more than 9,000 by the end of, of, of the work of cataloging them. Why? Why is there no other place in the, in the world that has that many freshwater fishes? And part of the theory, which armies of researchers are looking into in one way or another, is, well, maybe what happens is that there are a lot of species being originated in South America, but also there may be very few going extinct because South America has been a very stable environment for tens of millions of years. It's changed for sure, but in a way that has, as far as we can tell, not ever really wiped out a complete type of habitat, for example. So we think that there's a, an effect of accumulation that, that, that may help at least partly explain that hotspot of, of freshwater fish diversity. But truthfully, it's a, it's a very important question that, that there's a lot of people working on. <laughs> my, my question, and with biodiversity hotspots, is this. Do you think that there's more biodiversity hotspots now than there was, was like back then, or is it just the opposite? Do you think there's fewer, fewer now? <laughs> so that's a really good question. Um, so the... the the, um, the challenge that we face in kind of doing this in the fossil record, particularly in the more remote fossil record, is the, the major heterogeneity we have in sampling of that fossil record over time. So the, the, the fossil record as we understand it is passed through a series of filters. Right? There's the first filter we all think about, like you know, what happens to you know, die and be buried and become a fossil. But there are a series of kind of post-fossilization filters in terms of, you know, where fossils are studied, who gets to study them, um, you know, where we have a focus on particular groups. So when we look deep in the fossil record, the reason that we can say something about the biodiversity hotspot in the early part of the Cenozoic is because that's the relatively recent fossil record. We're talking about the past few tens of millions of years. And they're relatively dense marine records of particular kinds of organisms. The hypothesis of this hotspot migrating is not in fact based on fishes, but based on, on, on single-celled organisms called foraminifera. So it's based on, on, on relatives of, of amoebas basically that make hard parts and live on the seafloor, the particular studies that have tried to establish you know, how species richness has shifted across the ocean over this time. If we go further back in the record, um, our sampling is very patchy. There are parts of the world where we may have little to no sampling in particular intervals. Um, and there's a whole sort of subfield of paleontology that is dedicated to trying to um, address these clear biases. First of all, identifying what those patterns of bias might be and then trying to correct for them statistically to get a sort of a ba balanced and fair sample of not only the numbers of kinds of things, 
but how those things were spread geographically. And most work to date has focused not on hotspots, but rather on an even broader pattern of biological diversity, which is how species richness varies with latitude. So to a first order approximation for many groups, you have the highest levels of species richness at the equator, and it decreases toward the poles. So people have tried to establish whether that's a common pattern at other times in Earth history when climates were really different, right? When you have greenhouse Earth climates, when you have no polar ice caps, where you have maybe shallower thermal gradients going from equator to poles, do you also see shallower gradients in terms of species richness going from the equatorial regions up to mid-latitudes and high-latitudes? So what you're saying is that the hotspots have basically just kind of fluctuated over time. I mean, really oh, I'm sure, way, I'm, I'm sure really they, a way to see. yeah, I'm, I'm sure they have in part because the physical landscape has changed so much, right? If you look at, if you look at, you know, the, 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 the deployment of continents in the early part of the Cenozoic, you can recognize what those things are. You can pick out, you know, Europe and North America and Asia and Africa and South America. It's not that hard. But if you go back to like the Devonian, it gets really tricky really quick because you have all these little these little terrains that have subsequently become, become accreted to other land masses and split in other ways. Um, so I have no doubt that, that there have been substantial changes to, to not only the deployment of hotspots, but also the number of hotspots over time. I think, I think this is pretty closely related. One of the things that I noticed in looking at the biodiversity hotspots is that they seem uh, potentially correlated uh, with also tectonic activity, and especially as we consider hydrothermal vents and the circulation of nutrients, I'm wondering what kind of analyses may have been done uh, with respect to you know connecting those two together. So that's an excellent question that I, uh, I I'm by no means an expert on, but uh, so here's the thing though. Those biodiversity hotspots that you saw are for marine fishes for the most part. In some cases, a few other marine organisms. So would you expect to have the same hotspot distributions for say crabs or I don't know, mammals? And, and that's an important question because in some cases I think this tectonic uh, dance of the planet probably has had some really important effects on determining where you have biodiversity. Hydrothermal vents are probably a really poignant example of, of a very direct relationship because you need the heat that's coming down from there. But um, but yeah, I think I think the answer to your question of whether plate tectonics has a result has an influence on hotspots probably depends on what organism we're talking about. Now, at a larger scale, it it, it evidently has had a huge role in modulating the distribution of biodiversity at a planetary scale over large periods of time. So for example, there are groups of organisms that live in more than one continent, but are tied to fresh water or, or to land. So, you know, there's sometimes raging debate about how did that happen? I and mean, did they swim across the Atlantic or did they tag along with a continent a lot earlier and that kind of thing? So all of the above? <laughs> I don't know. Dan's looking at me with doubtful expression. <laughs> So, so I, I, I guess to, to build on that point, I mean, I, I think Arnon hit on a really important concept here, and namely that, that hotspots are group-specific, right? So they may be groups that are united by maybe common features that are ecology. So hotspots, I mean, the, the map that we showed for fishes, you could show that for marine gastropods, you could show it for bivalves, you could probably show it for crabs too, it'd look more or less similar, right? These are creatures who, you know, they're mostly living in shallow marine settings. But if we think even you know, somewhere closer to our own backyards in North America, if you think about the distribution of species richness in freshwater aquatic organisms versus terrestrial organisms, they're very different. So like you know, the, the, the major concentrations of mammalian species richness is basically in the western part of the US where you have a lot of topographic complexity, right? Where you have you know, different species living at different elevation zones. By contrast, where do you have a lot of freshwater fish diversity? It's in, it's in the southeastern US, which is, has topographic relief, but not to the same degree that you see in, in the Mountain West. So there are these varying factors at play. And if you think about what fish diversity is like in the highest elevation portions of North America, there are interesting hints we get there. It's actually quite low species richness. And we get some idea from the fossil record 
about how that's modulated by extinction and origination. You'd think with uplift of mountains, you might have separation of drainages, and separation of drainages might lead to speciation. Well, it also means that a lot of those drainages might be quite ephemeral, which means high extinction. And so in this case, the extinction rates are sort of outstripping the speciation rates. Maybe that's keeping the, the, the overall richness lower. So this might be a little less scientific question, but uh, Kier mentioned the culinary fish love. Um, and you guys are self-proclaimed fish nerds, clearly have a love of fishes. Do you eat them? Yes. And if so, are there one uh, uh, species that you stay away from or areas of fishing that you would stay away from? So, so, so I don't eat fish, so that, that, that's an easy answer for me. You don't eat fish? What's wrong with you? <sighs> Sorry, man. So I, 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 I do eat fish, almost all of them. I can tell you the exact diametrical opposites of my fish eating experience. So the absolute best fish I've ever eaten is a slow, cold-grilled paku in the Amazon, the fish that is about 50 pounds that tastes like nuts because that's what it eats. Absolutely extraordinary. Not to say that there aren't many other fishes that I consider delicious. The one thing I would never recommend to eat is freshwater miniature anchovies from South America. Um, when I was a graduate student, my advisor and I played a joke on an undergraduate that was with us in, in the field and we ended up being the butt of the joke. Because you, you drag a net and you catch thousands of these things. They're tiny and totally transparent. And we jokingly told the students, like, oh, you can eat those. Those are delicious as sushi. And the students said, ah, I don't believe you. So we each grabbed a handful and put them in our mouth. It wasn't good. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, does that help? <laughs> So I was looking at question number three on our table talk there um, about preserving diversity and so forth and thinking about complex systems theory, we can't, we can't reliably pick winners and losers. We don't know which clade is gonna blast off into the next uh, explosion of, of diversity. So it seems to me that the, that the strategy for, for preserving these biodiversity hotspots over time as conditions change is really maybe more not so much preserving the maximum diversity spots as preventing genetic bottleneck spots at kind of the genus or family uh, level. Is, is, does that make sense? Is that something that can be done? Um, how, how do we, what's, the, what's the, the minimum loss strategy for preserving diversity when we don't know who's gonna be the next big winners and losers in the genetic lottery? Well, I think that's been an ongoing question in conservation biology for a very long time. Um, I'm no expert in conservation biology, but, but that much, I'm pretty sure, has been a huge source of debate. So just by looking at the way people talk about conservation and how to prioritize it tells you very much what you just said. You know, we've, we've talked about ecological corridors and umbrella species and ecosystem services and any number of things in which you can go from targeting very specific organisms that because they are highly endangered or something like that, which happens, to sort of blindly targeting enormous regions of the planet because they are relatively um, untouched and presumably functionally uh, untouched as well, and so you you hope that you preserve a large area and all of its diversity as well as all of its ecological function and anything in between. But truthfully, I don't think there is one way to approach conservation that maximizes all of those things at the same time, other than you know the obviously and pragmatically impossible thing of leave it all alone because it's just not going to happen. Um, so no, I, I think that's a that's a absolutely on on spot comment and, and thought and I think it, it, it keeps a lot of people awake at night to think about how to solve that problem. Sort of jumping back to the previous question, if you could bring one fossil back to life, which one would you do? And secondly, how would it taste? 
I guess I would, um, if, if I could bring a fossil, like one individual, like a whole mess of them in a tank. I mean, just one, a whole mess. Okay, that, that's, that's what your hand said to me. That, that said a whole mess to me. So I, I guess if I had to restrict myself to like fish world, I think that's kind of like the, the premise of the question, right? So I would, what, I would really be interested to, to have as a living animal would be the, the closest jawless relatives of jawed vertebrates. So, so today's living jawless vertebrates are hagfishes and lampreys. They're super weird, sort of superficially eely-like animals that lead really unsavory lives by like either sucking fluids out of living animals or like burrowing into dead or, or, or nearly dead um, animals. So they're not... They're not great house guests, I guess. Um, <laughs> but they're super weird. And people have kind of looked to them as you know, the single extant or living interpretive model we have for understanding what you know, the, 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 the closest jawless relatives of jawed vertebrates are like. But it turns out if we look in the fossil record, there are jawless fishes that are much more similar to jawed fishes. Um, in the sense that you know, hagfish and lampreys, they don't have bone. They don't have a lot of the kinds of features that are also hallmarks of the body plan of vertebrates that have jaws. Um, so I'd be really interested to look at some of these, these animals called astracoderms and more specifically called osteostracans um, that are the, the closest jawless cousins of, of jawed vertebrates. Because I could imagine that you know, even a, a basic kind of laboratory dissection of one of these animals would be incredibly informative for how we think about the assembly of, of the body plan of jawed vertebrates, which are like most of, of backboned animals today, right? Like 99% or more of all living backboned animals have jaws. Like that's such a, a, a huge imbalance in the genealogy of, of backboned animals. Um, as to how they would taste, they, they were benthic deposit feeders. So they were basically eating mud so, I mean, I guess if your Paku tasted like nuts, then I guess Osteostracans would probably taste like dirt. Um, <laughs> that, that'd be being very charitable about it. So I think, I think they would be very unpleasant. It'd be a lot of work. They also, I mean, I guess, you know, their head is basically a big shield with gills in it. And I guess they'd have a meaty tail. Um, but you'd have, to, you'd have to crack them open. They'd be more like eating a lobster, I think, because they have this bony armored carapace on the outside of their body. Do you have a suggestion? What would you bring back? I, I have a suggestion that wouldn't have nearly that much of a consequence for evolutionary biology, but I'm kind of obsessed with functional morphology and how fishes function. And so if I could, I would, I would bring Helicoprion, because I would love to know what that thing did with its jaws. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's basically this fish that is known mostly from this world of shark-looking teeth. And there's been some absolutely deliciously outlandish reconstructions of what that thing might have looked like and the animal and what the animal might have looked like. And I don't know that we have any particularly credible reconstructions. I'd love to see what that thing looked like. What did it taste? Probably not so bad, but probably not very different from a shark, since presumably it was a predator. I don't think it was eating algae with that thing, but... Um, <laughs> Other questions or thoughts? Contributions? Okay. Um, with the talk about uh, counting and mapping rare, uh, not just rare fish, but rare ecological functions of fish, um, can you give us any examples? I'm not sure that I've got the imagination to really know what that is. Rare from a functional perspective? Yeah. Okay. Oh boy. There'd be some cool stuff in there. So this one, it's not so rare to me, but I think it's not something that we tend to think a lot about when, when we think of fish. So a, a, a big portion of the fishes that we study in my lab most frequently are substrate sifters. So they have this specialized mouths that, on the one hand, can pick up a bunch of sand or mud from the bottom, and then they use specialized structures in the pharynx, which we don't exactly understand how they work, to basically go like this. 
And then what they do by doing that is they move the sand and the mud and a bunch of invertebrates they've picked up from the bottom and they filter out the, the, the non-edible stuff and they keep the invertebrates in the mouth. So, I mean, it's not so weird to me, but I think that's something that we don't tend to think about as, as, a, as a feeding mechanism. So I count it among the weird. Uh, profoundly weird. How about I, I'll shock you with 600 volts of electricity and then I'll eat you. That's what electric eels do. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, there are a lot of interesting and weird ecologies in open ocean ecosystems. So um, there are whole, there's this whole kind of almost uh, commensal to parasitic set of relationships that fishes have with, with various gelatinous plankton. So jellyfishes or, or these things called, um, called salps, which are these um, co colonial tunicates, so related to vertebrates or chordates. Um, and there are deep sea fishes that live inside what is the equivalent of our throat in these salps. They make their homes inside these creatures and kind of nibble their insides. Um, there are all kinds of strange and peculiar ecologies. I'm sure you've thought of something pretty gross or not. I, uh, we're in polite company. <laughs> oh, now I'm not going to say it. <laughs> trying to figure out how to phrase this, but the data you're presenting is taking place over millions of years or tens of millions or more. How do you talk to policymakers about changing or preserving biodiversity when they're term limited to four or eight years? <laughs> you don't? <laughs> I mean, how, even humankind, right? You know, how, do you, how do you translate that to human terms, which what can we affect today that might have an effect 10 million years from now? Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really, a really important question in, 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 in real world conservation. I think that's exactly why in conservation biology you hear so much uh, terminology like ecosystem services. It's like, what would happen if this ecosystem wasn't there anymore? So I, um, there's been any number of iterations of, of that particular proposition, but to give you one that is very relevant today, for instance, uh, right now in the climate change conference that is happening in, uh, where is it happening? Yeah, in Egypt. Um, uh, one of the conversations has been, well, what are developed countries with a lot of money going to do to pay tropical countries with a lot of rainforest not to cut it down so that we can keep the, the processes in the atmosphere going the way that they are. And, and that is putting conservation in a, in, in, a, in a very strong practical terminology that has a lot to do with both four-year political terms and with the practicality of the fact that we're changing things so fast that we're going to have to do something very fast. Or, for example, all the conversation about uh, moving away from fossil fuels and, 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 and basically shifting the entire economy towards um, sustainable energy is, is exactly that. And it's conservation not of one species or, or of something that might be the genetic origin of whatever comes in 50 million years, but, but basically is, is, is preserving the conditions for life today. And so it becomes pretty stark when, when you put it in those terms, or it's probably what is actually going to lead us to do something about it. In, in, in the immediate future. Well, that was very optimistic. <laughs> if you were able to go travel back in time so you could scuba to Ivan any, any ocean, like the, during the uh, Ordovician or Silurian Devonian, whatever, what period ocean would you like to dive in the most and why? It's a really challenging questions. Um, <laughs> Oh boy. I mean, so I guess I, I personally have quite broad ranging interests in the fossil record of fishes. So like I've done work in the Paleozoic and Mesozoic and Cenozoic. And so you might get a different answer from me depending on the day of the week <laughs> or the time of day of that day of the week. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there are some, some parts of the record we understand less well than others. Um, and even in parts, so for example, in parts of the record in the Cenozoic that I would say that we know poorly, 
we know them very well in comparison to some of the best known intervals of the Paleozoic. So it's a sort of sliding scale. Um, I guess what I would like to do is go to um, you know, a C in the late Ordovician or early Silurian. And that's around the time the first jawed vertebrates evolved. Um, and a time when we have very, very poor fossil records. The fossil vertebrates we have from that time um, tend to be from shallow marine settings, so like coarse sandstones that are you know, recording these environments that are really energetic and delicate fossils like fishes get broken up. And so our, our, our understanding of what they looked like is limited to like scraps, bits and pieces rather than whole animals. Um, so I think that is the kind of place where, you know, being able to throw on a, 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 a you know, a, a, a pair of fins and a snorkel or something and swim around a, a late Ordovician or early Silurian coastline, dodge some Eurypterids, um, and maybe look out for some fishes would be amazing. Should I answer too? Can it be fresh water or, or something like that? Your choice. I would love to go snorkel in in what today is southern Bolivia, northern Argentina, some 70 million years ago, because I really want to know how the freshwater fishes of South America started becoming what they are today. In that area, there are fossils of things that are no longer in South America, like these Cretaceous fishes, like semionotids and things like that. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing fossils of modern fishes. And it's not clear at all how they shifted from one to the other. And I'd love to know what happened then. That's great. We have to wrap up in just a few moments. Um, there are little blue pieces of paper on your tables. They are evaluations. They are the place you can put suggestions for future topics. They are the place you can tell these wonderful folks what a, what a great job they've done today or something else. Thank you. Um, um, and, and filling out the evaluation really helps us um, w keep this kind of program funded. Um, NSF includes this in it, and it was included in a broader impacts portion of research grants uh, as, as, an out, as part of our outreach. The next Science Cafe will be on Wednesday, January 25th. Did I get that right? Wednesday, January 25th. Um, I don't know the topic yet, but it's going to be fan fantastic and fascinating. Um, uh, and I will announce it. So while you are filling out uh, those evaluations and remembering your servers, Claire and I've forgotten the gentleman's name, um, but please remember your servers. Please remember the little box on your way out the door. Uh, your donations help. Maybe we could do one more question. We have just about a minute. If anybody has a last question. I liked that last one, though, to end on the diving. Where would you, what, what period would you dive? That was a good one. All right, thank you so much for being a great audience this evening.